Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. When I feel up, okay, I'm up. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 182 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 9, Lunar Module Maneuvers Part 3. We ended the previous episode, number 181, with McDivitt and Swigert in the lunar module preparing for the firing of the descent module's engine. Here's Walter Cronkite to explain what's going to happen next. The next uh, big operation on the, uh, in the space flight of Apollo 9 uh, is a very critical one. It comes about three hours from now. At, uh, I think it's scheduled around 12.45 at noon. And at that time, they are, for the first time, going to fire the lunar module descent stage engine. Uh, This is showing, this animation, showing that engine firing right now. That engine is throttleable, uh, which is kind of an interesting word to try to say, early in the morning anyway. But it is throttleable. It goes from 1,050 pounds of thrust to 9,870 pounds of thrust and can be operated uh, just like any other engine that can be speeded up or slowed down. This engine is most critical because this is the engine that will lower the lunar module, both the descent stage and the ascent stage, hooked together to the moon's surface from the orbit around the moon of some 59 miles. It will lower the spacecraft slowly to the moon, and then by adjusting that throttle, they will set down very, very carefully on the moon's surface. The engine also could be used even before that uh, as an emergency backup power system to get the spacecraft out of lunar orbit and into uh, the trans-Earth trajectory to bring it back home. You remember in the flight of Apollo 9, where they did not carry this lunar module, this was a critical point in that flight because they had only the service propulsion system engine to get them started back home again. Well, on a uh, moon mission with the lunar module, they could use this engine also as a backup if the SPS engine was not working to bring them home, provided, of course, it had not previously been used to get to the moon because the lunar module descent stage stays on the moon. Now, if it does have enough fuel remaining, it also could be used to lift back off of the moon, but it might not have that fuel available anyway. That would again be a backup system. The lunar module ascent stage is supposed to take the uh, spacemen back from the moon's surface to the Uh, orbiting spaceship and leave the descent stage on the moon. That engine on our model over here is right at the bottom, of course, of the 
uh, lunar module descent stage. This is the descent stage beginning with this flat platform here, and there is the engine right down there at the bottom. You can just about see it there. That, that engine, as I said, 1,050 to 1,950 uh, pounds of thrust. The engine on the lunar module ascent stage uh, is a 3,500-pound thrust engine. That is used to get the men back off of the descent stage, which becomes the uh, launch platform for the men leaving the moon's surface and going back to the orbiting uh, spaceship. The, uh, uh, this engine will function today at around 1245, after the men have checked out all of the systems aboard the spacecraft. Uh, then, with that test, they will fire it up and really give it a pretty good firing because they will impart uh, 1,714 feet per second to their speed. That's uh, 1,165 miles an hour, and that's a pretty good jolt uh, with that engine. It will give a pretty good test to the whole structure uh, here when they fire off the engine with that much power, and it will have an effect of actually changing the orbit of the spacecraft. It will move the orbit of six degrees uh, to the east. It, the uh, spacecraft at that time will be making a pass over the United States. It'll be up north or around over Charleston or somewhere in that area. And at that time, they will fire this engine with the, the spacecraft is called out of plane, out of the orbital plane. And when they do, it'll just jar them over some six degrees. And that's quite a long way on the map. If you take a look at it, it's a, uh, a good sizable change in their orbit. Uh, this uh, is not only a uh, test for them, but it has a practical effect of moving the orbit plane to a point where other maneuvers will take place in light or dark as they want them to take place. Uh, it will change the perigee also by a couple of miles. That is the low point of their orbit, and the new orbit will be 132 by 310 uh, miles. The spacemen after this maneuver today will continue to work uh, for a while in the spacecraft, not for very much longer, and then they will crawl back into the command module uh, there to uh, eat and to rest and to get another night's sleep. Now here's a clip on how that throttleable engine is supposed to work. Well, what they mean by the throttleable engine is that we can change the percent of thrust. Now, the way this will be controlled is by two modes, one by the computer here, known as the DISCI, and the other one by the commander's hand controller on my left side, which is very similar to what you have there. Right. They will start the engine, it'll go up to approximately 10% thrust when it starts, and then manually it will be taken up to about 40%. From there the program will take it further to 100% thrust. Uh, automatically then back down to 40 and then they go back and forth a little bit getting their readings you told me earlier up here yes so it's going to be a pretty thorough workout for that engine Walter as you said the first throttleable engine in space when McDivitt was sure the systems were operating properly he asked Scott to put the command module into neutral control so he could check out the lunar module steering system McDivitt then operated these small thrusters to get the docked vehicles, both commands, service module, and lunar module, into the correct position for firing the lunar module's throttleable descent propulsion system. The small thrusters performed excellently, and the lunar module was ready for the big test. Seconds after starting the large descent engine, McDivitt shouted, quote, Look at that attitude ball. We hardly have any errors. End quote. 
26 seconds later, at full thrust, he reported that errors were still practically non-existent. Then it was time to throttle down. Remember, the capability to throttle down was absolutely mandatory in the final seconds before landing on the moon. Mission Control, along with the astronauts, held their breath while McDivitt throttled down the lander. Mission Control telemetry showed the engine responding exactly as it should. The lunar module appeared to be a dependable machine. Here's a clip of the astronauts communicating with Mission Control during the burn. Cronkite reporting the success of the burn, along with some comments from Grumman. It is a mark of the smoothness of this uh, first major test of the lunar module descent engine that uh, uh, even as the burn was taking place, and it lasted over six minutes, considerably increasing the uh, speed of the spacecraft by 1165 miles an hour and actually changing its orbital plane. But right in the middle of that, Commander Jim McDivitt uh, said, boy, am I hungry. And even later on, he complained again about his extreme hunger. He said uh, that he was about to starve up there, and that just as soon as this uh, part of the operation was over, he was going to take some time out and have a meal, one of the prepared meals that they carry aboard, of course. Uh, what was happening there, as you saw, to repeat again, was the first test of this throttleable uh, the engine on the descent stage, which will eventually lower man from the command ship 59 miles down to the surface of the Earth. The uh, engine works from a 1,000-pound thrust up to 9,500 uh, pounds of thrust, and today, as you heard, they were uh, throttling it up through 10% and up into 40% of its maximum power uh, to boost the spacecraft into an orbit some uh, 360 miles east of the orbit it had previously been in. They're at an altitude uh, between 132 at the low point and 310 miles high. As that uh, burn, as the firing of the engines is called, continued, it went uh, perfectly successfully, and right at the end of the maneuver, ground control called up and said, it's a beautiful burn, you are right down the tube. And David Scott said from the command ship, it looked good up here, and from the uh, LEM, the similar words of encouragement that this first test of the engine had gone exceedingly well. Uh, one small cloud on the horizon, uh, Schweikert uh, earlier today had a little nausea, uh, some space sickness of some kind, motion sickness perhaps, at any rate a nausea that they are now studying, and if he uh, does not uh, 
uh, have any further recurrence of that, the mission will go on as planned. If he does, there may be some change in the plan for his spacewalk scheduled for tomorrow. Now let's go out to uh, Grumman Aircraft on Long Island, where Steve Rowan and Scott McCloud are standing by to show us what transpired this morning in this uh, maneuver. Walter, no one more interested, of course, than the folks here at Lemon, uh, Grumman who built the LEM uh, in that burn. And Scotty McCloud, perhaps you can show us just how the burn went. Uh, it was both manually and automatically controlled, correct? Yes, it was, Steve. Uh, they start the burn by entering the requirements into the computer that you see here in front. Then, when the engine has started and gets up to about 10%, the commander would use his thrust controller over my left side, very similar, similar to, to the one you have there, and he would increase, after a short period of time, the thrust level to about 40% manually. Then he stands by and holds 40%, and the computer catches up to him, goes on to 100% burn. Then he brings it back down in the neighborhood of 40% again. And the control is passed back and forth so that they can exercise both the automatic control of the burn and the manual control of the burn. Scotty, why do you start at 10% with a descent stage engine burn? Well, we have a gimbaled engine in the descent engine, and if it's possibly off-center when they're initializing the burn, then it would give a pitching moment. We hold it at 10% to allow it to come back to center. From everything you heard, it was a pretty successful burn? Very successful. After the success of the descent engine firing, thoughts turned to the next big maneuver, Swikert's EVA. Everyone was concerned about Swikert's ability to accomplish the EVA. Here's how Walter Cronkite reported it. Nelson Button is uh, down in Houston, Texas at the Manned Space Center. Nelson, I wonder if you've got anything late on uh, the Schweikert nausea and how it may affect tomorrow's spacewalk. Uh, Walter, we, we have two sides of the coin. We heard on the air-to-ground transmission earlier the phrase used by one of the crew, I think it was McDivitt, that said, since we're not going to do EVA tomorrow, EVA, of course, being the acronym for a spacewalk, uh, that was immediately followed by a report from the public affairs officer, John Riley, who said that EVA is still in the flight plan. So right now, we still have the indication of perhaps uh, ground controllers thinking one thing and the crew thinking another. But uh, the, the probability seems to be that uh, EVA, the spacewalk, is a bridge that uh, the controllers plan to cross uh, when they get to it, Walter. I gather, Nelson, that because there is a five-day pad in this flight, all of the principal parts of the mission, the test of the LEM and the uh, extravehicular uh, equipment, the life support system, all is to take place in these first five days, or five days remaining. There would not be uh, any uh, real serious uh, constraint to their holding off perhaps one day to be sure that uh, Schweikert is in top-notch physical shape to make that spacewalk. Uh, that's right, Walter. They can slip one day. The entire mission can be slipped uh, one day. That means that the uh, limb would just be powered down for that period. So if there were a problem, uh, there, there's still uh, an extra 24 hours to contemplate it. They'll be looking at that during the rest of this day, of course. Uh, the men will be in the limb for another five hours or so, and then they'll be climbing back a little less than that, climbing back into the command module for uh, uh, some more meals and uh, rest period, and then tomorrow the spacewalk. After Swigert had vomited on two occasions, McDivitt was doubtful that the lunar module pilot would be able to handle his chores outside the spacecraft. 
During the EVA, Swikert was supposed to crawl out to the lunar module front porch and retrieve some science samples placed there. Then, Dave Scott was to open the command module hatch, and Swigert was to transverse from the lunar module to the command module and enter it. Similar to the Russian method, transferring outside the spacecrafts. This was to demonstrate the capability of changing spacecrafts from the outside if for any reason the astronauts could not use the tunnel between the lunar module and the command module. McDivitt recommended to flight control that the EVA be limited to cabin depressurization. Flight control agreed that the extravehicular activity would consist of one daylight period, with Swigert wearing the portable life support system and the lunar module umbilical hoses, and with both the lunar module and command module hatches open. Now here is a very nice clip from NBC on the spacesuit, which is also known as the primary life support system, or PLSS. We chatted with the man who directed the development of the spacesuit, Dr. Rather, Mr. Leonard Shepard of ILC Industries. And here now is that interview. Mr. Shepard, what's different in the suit that will be worn on this flight as against the suits that have been worn up to now in Apollo? The basic suit is unchanged. Its function is the same. The major differences are that astronaut Schweikert will have to go outside the command module in free space. In order to accomplish that safety, safely, we have to add the protection of the thermal micrometeoroid garment, which was not on either of the two previous flights, plus the extravehicular gloves, plus the extravehicular visor assembly. Now, all of this is to protect him from the uh, tremendous heat of the sun, which he'll have without any protection of the spacecraft. Yes. And also the existence, uh, or the supposed existence, of dust that flies around Micrometeoroid. Which could go through a normal suit, or possibly yes. could. Yes. This, this uh, thermal micrometeoroid garment has the necessary bumpers to protect him from such an impact. Well, now, what will astronaut Schweikert do to protect his face and his eyes? He has two visors here, one of which will be used during the dark portions, or on the night side. That will prevent his helmet from getting so cold that his breath will condense on the inside surface of the helmet. The fogging problem. Right. Then in order to protect his face from the heat of the sun during the night, uh, the day operations, he will pull down the second visor, which has a gold coating on it to prevent infrared, infrared radiation from penetrating. Now he really looks like a man from Mars. How much, we're not seeing him at all. How much is he seeing on the inside? The optical density of this system is not very different from a common pair of sunglasses. It's about 18 to 20 percent light transmittance. We, maybe we better pull it up so we can see a little bit more of what we're right. doing. How much mobility uh, does he have, Mr. Shepard, in this kind of a suit with it all? Well, I, think, pressure? I think we can demonstrate that, uh, Peter. This suit is now pressurized to the same operating pressure that he would have in space. His mobility is exactly the same as it will be in space, with the exception of the G-forces. Of course, he's at 1G here and will be at 0G. And if you'll show us what you can do... Very important to be able to use the fingers and arms. Yes. Another difference between this suit and the ones that flew on a, Apollo 7 and 8 is that the astronaut will wear underneath the suit, in place of his underwear, a liquid cooling garment, which has very small plastic tubes in it, and the backpack circulates chilled water through the tubes to help keep him cool during his extravehicular activity. Well, he did that pretty well. 
Actually, if you didn't take certain precautions, I suppose you'd be rigid out there. What, what would it be without? Well, I can show you that too, Peter. These two tubes are approximately the diameter of the arm of the suit, and they are both pressurized to about the same pressure. And if you'll try to bend that one, that would be what a suit would be like without any joints in it. Impossible. I'll vouch for that. This sample has an actual elbow joint in it, and it's also pressurized the same way, and you can see the substantial difference in effort needed. That's the same amount as he'll have in the pressurized suit? Yes, this is the type of joint that he has in the suit. Now, what would happen if he bumped that helmet on some part of the spacecraft, or if he fell down? We have a new material that is used in the helmet. I have over here two samples of material, one of which is a common acrylic, or lucite. It's used in aircraft canopies and has been used in the past for helmet visors. It does have several serious disadvantages. Peter, if you'll be my guest, <laughs> I get to break this, <laughs> if it'll break. And it did. And this, I presume, is your, your new... Yes, this is a polycarbonate material from which both the helmet and the external visor assembly is made. And I wish you'd put more effort into it than you did in the other one. <laughs> that's about as much effort as I can do. I see there are a couple of dents, but that's about all. It's a very tough material, and it does enable us to give him the full helmet and sufficient protection that we don't have any concern about safety on the lunar surface or extravehicular. Now, speaking of the lunar surface, I see we have other pieces of gear here. These presumably are what's going to be added still more to the suit for protection. Right. There is no requirement for this equipment on this flight. This equipment is specifically for the lunar flight, in which when the lunar landing takes place, there will be additional radiation thermal radiation from the lunar surface reflected to the sun, reflected from the surface. To provide protection from that, we must add this thermal insulation to the extravehicular visor assembly in the back. This goes on the back of his helmet. It goes on the back of his helmet. Yes. In addition to that, the boot soles which are used on this suit do not have sufficient insulation for the hot lunar surface, which can go up to a temperature of about 310 degrees Fahrenheit. These lunar boots have silicone rubber soles they are thermally insulated inside and in the ankle and are provided with abrasion protection on the side through the use of this metallic fabric, which is known as Chromel R. It's a non-flammable, in pure oxygen, very strong, high abrasion resistant metallic Biggest fabric. Biggest pair of sneakers I've ever seen. Now, if I were to go down to a, our local haberdashery and order a suit like this, what would it cost me? Well, assuming that you are a qualified purchaser and you are buying it within the same period that we are building other suits, Transportation not included. We can send you, sell you a suit certified for the moon for about $100,000. That's all? Is that with transportation two, pair, two pair of pants? Is, transportation is not included. Thanks very much, Mr. Shepard. Thank you. On the fourth day of the flight, Swigert felt better than expected as he worked his way into the lander to get it ready for the EVA. By the time he had put on the backpack, McDivitt was ready to let him do more to stand on the lunar lander porch at least. Mission Control told McDivitt to use his own judgment, so he fastened Swigert to the nylon cord tether that would keep him from floating away from the spacecraft. Once Swigert had entered this third spacecraft, the spacesuit, to become essentially a self-contained unit, Flight Control ran a communications check with the PLSS, as they called him. The four-way conversation between Spider, Gumdrop, PLSS, and Mission Control 
was much clearer than they had expected. Lunar module depressurization also went smoothly. Swigert could tell that his backpack was operating since he could hear water gurgling while he watched his pressure indicator. He was quite comfortable. McDivitt had to use more force than he anticipated to turn the hatch latch handle and more strength to swing the hatch inside. He was very careful to keep the door pushed back, fearing it might stick closed, leaving Swigert outside. Once the lunar module hatch was opened, Scott pushed the command module hatch outward. Swigert, who now called himself Red Rover because of his rust-colored hair, enjoyed the view and did so well outside on the platform in the golden slippers foot restraint that McDivitt decided to let him try out the handrails. Hanging on with one hand as he moved about, he took photographs and found that the handholds made everything easier than it had been in simulation, even in underwater training. Here's some audio from the EVA. David Scott has opened the hatch of the command module, and Rusty Schweikert and Jim McDivitt in the lunar landing craft have opened the front hatch of that craft now, and very shortly Rusty Schweikert will be leaving through that hatch to the front porch. This is Rusty Schweikert speaking to Jim McDivitt. Feeling fine. Can you go ahead and, and try to run the thing for the 
day passes and a one night pass. Looks like uh, we might be able to do that for you. Uh, Jim, that's uh, your Jim, decision. Uh, it's, it's up to you. It's all go without it. Okay, the thing that bothers me is that if it does, we may have to reconsider how we're going to do that ground crew tomorrow. We're going to have to get some sleep here sometime. Uh, Rod, right, we got it. Right, we got it. We'll think it over and see what you decide. Okay, okay. And spiders, if it's Houston, we're recommending that you terminate at the end of this daylight pass. Okay, I sort of felt that way too. I don't think we're going to try that transfer for sure. All right, we'll terminate here. Okay, Dave, come on out. Okay. I'm going to let the camera run here. Dave, come on out wherever you are. Talking about Dave Scott uh, sticking his head out of the command module. Yeah, you want to retrieve a sample? Right, that's a good idea. Okay, Dave, let me get around here where I can get a picture, too. Okay. Okay, Rusty, why don't you pass the camera back in here and work on the hammer holes up there, the hammer holes up there for just a bit. Can you stand by one? The change film packs here. Okay, here comes the new one. Hey, just a minute, let me get this other one zipped in. Yeah. And take it easy out there, I don't want you getting the... Okay, okay. Yeah, Rusty? Yes, sir. Stand by. Uh, Houston, this is Red River. If you read, I'm just going to call you in the blind here. The uh, suit's very comfortable. Uh, I'm on noon cooling, and I haven't had any problem at all. The only thing that's warm at all are my hands, and they're just uh, barely warm. They're not really hot at all. Uh, Rod, Red Rover, this is Houston. Uh, we're reading you loud and clear. We're copying all transmissions. Rusty, why don't you exercise the handrails a little bit just to see how they work, and... Uh, don't go very far up, and if Dave gets a picture fine, it doesn't well, I just did. Okay. I think it's going to go 90 degrees to that way, Dave. Yeah. Put it on down there, and we'll lock it. Dave, you take a picture yet? No, I can't get it to run now, would you believe? Oh, okay, I quit it then. It got kind of smashed around a little bit, too. I think these cameras are good for one film pack, and that's about it when you're doing work like this with them. Steve, I want you to evaluate those handles, and when you get through with it, I want a conclusion from you on whether or not it's a... Practical way of doing it, like we've already started this. Okay. This is no problem at all. Okay, going back down it again. And... Yeah, there are almost no disturbing torque. I mean, I don't have any problem at all just maintaining myself wherever I want. Okay, Rusty, why don't you start coming back in? Nice, coming in. As anticipated, Swikert did not go over and visit Scott in the command module, but both pilots retrieved experimental samples from the spacecraft hulls. Scott and Swigert also took pictures of each other, like tourists in a strange country. The EVA was originally scheduled to last more than two hours, but it ended in less than one, partly because they did not want to tire Swigert after his illness, and partly because they had plenty to do to get ready for the next day's activity, the key event of the entire mission, the separation and rendezvous of the lunar module and the command module. With the door closed and their life-sustaining outside equipment off, McDivitt and Swikert recharged the backpack, tidied up the cabin, and returned to the command module.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.